Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 23rd, 2013, and my guest is Anthony Gill. He is a professor of political science and sociology at the University of Washington, a distinguished research scholar at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion. His latest book is The Political Origins of Religious Liberty, and he is host of the podcast Research on Religion, which is simulcasting this episode of EconTalk. Tony, welcome to EconTalk. It is an honor to be here, Russ. And before getting started, I want to mention that if all goes well, this is the first EconTalk episode of 2014. And I'd like to hear from you out there in the listening audience about your favorite episodes of 2013. So send me an email with a list of your five favorite episodes. They don't have to be in order, but it's episodes, not guests. So if you like Mike Munger, for example, you have to pick and choose which episode of his is your favorite. Although you can put more than one in the top five if you'd like. Uh, send in me an email at mail at econtalk.org and put favorites in the subject line. And after a few weeks, we'll tally the results and release them via Facebook, Twitter. You can follow me there at econtalker and my blog, Cafe Hayek. Now for today's conversation with Anthony Gill on the economics of religion. I want to start by putting this in perspective. Economists and political scientists don't pay a lot of attention to religion as a subject worthy of study. Why do you think that is? It, that's a really interesting question, and it's, it seems to be a very big blind spot within economics, political science, and a few other fields as well. And I'm amazed that when I first started my career at the University of Washington, I was researching religion and politics, and somebody came up to me and says, oh, after you finish writing this stuff, you're going to go on to more mainstream political science. And I, I thought a minute, and I said, well, you know, as political scientists and as political economists, we examine organizations, the formal organizations such as states and political parties and things like that. And and I asked this person, what is the longest standing historical institution that's alive and well here on planet Earth today? And the answer is the Catholic Church as, as a formal hierarchy. You can either date it back 2,000 years if you want to go back to the birth of Christ or, you know, say 1,700 years if you want to think about the formalization of it at the uh, Council of Nicaea. And I, I, you know, bring this to, to mind because most of the states and other organizations that we study and put a lot of effort into, they, they've gone. They've come and gone. Every Chinese empire has come and gone, hasn't lasted 1,700 years. Egyptian empires, the, the Soviet Union, et cetera, et cetera. And I turned to my colleagues and I said, well, wouldn't you want to know why an institution like this has existed for so long? And it gets them to pause. They say, oh, yeah, maybe we aren't really paying enough attention to religion. And um, so I, it, it's, it is rather interesting why we don't. And there might be some reasons for this. I think there's part of it in the modern academy today. We tend to have the, uh, well, I don't know anybody who voted for Nixon syndrome that, uh, you know, not too many academics go to church. There's still a lot of people that do that attend religious services, but it's not as frequent in the common population. So it's 
a little bit out of sight and out of mind and other issues such as it, it might be very difficult to quantify the uh, various aspects of religion. And we, we tend to think of it as only in terms of theologies rather as in institutions. And theologies are very difficult to measure. We can't put them into our regression equations or anything like that. So well, if we can't measure it, we can't really study it. And so it must not be important. Yeah, I think there's um, the, I, I don't know anybody who voted for Nixon, which I think, by the way, is a quote from Pauline Kael, the New Yorker reviewer of, of film. Uh, which was a statement about the social circles that she swam in. And it's certainly true of academics that we swim in uh, similar social circles relative uh, to religion. I think there's something more than that, though. It's not just out of sight, out of mind. It's There's something for most academics, religion and religious practice is alien. And mm-hmm. because it's so alien, I think it's hard for people in the academic world to think of it as something that's rational or predictable or amenable to analysis – Partly for the reason you mentioned, which is the measurability issue, but I think also it's it's just something different. It's not doesn't most people don't think of it. Most academics don't think of it as something that falls within the purview of their disciplines. I, I think that's true. And as scientists, as social scientists, we often try to figure out the logic of life and the causal processes. And a lot of religion, or at least the the very core of religious belief is that, well, I'm going to take a leap of faith. I don't know whether God exists or not, but I'm going to believe, and I'm going to believe this theological story. I, I, don't, I can't sit down and necessarily reason it. I know, I know some theologians have, have done this. Thomas Aquinas and, and uh, Blaise Pascal have done that, for instance. But you know, for most people, it's just a, an act of blind faith rather than sitting down and reasoning. Now, that said, the actual act of believing in God or believing a certain theological doctrine is different than what we have in regular social life, is that people do believe these things, and then they come together in organizational forms and take actions. And, and all of those things actually do have a logical process to that. You know, churches exist in a world of scarcity, and as such, economics would seem to be applied to that. It, it, you know, to, I've, I've run across a number of philosophers and scholars who said, well, you know, economics is good when you talk about banking or setting up a business, but when it comes to churches, no, that economic logic doesn't apply. And again, I'm somewhat flummoxed by this. I said, well, you know, a pastor only has 24 hours in the day. They have to allocate scarce resources, whether it be monetary resources, volunteer resources. And and so therefore they have to make decisions just like a business entrepreneur or anybody else would. And and this is where really the, the study of economics of religion comes in. It's not so much analyzing whether God exists or not, but it it's taking people's beliefs and seeing how they organize them in social life. And of course, most religious leaders have to be entrepreneurial or they're not going to mm-hmm. – depending on what country they're in, they're not going to have any uh, – they're going to have any customers. So it, it, it can be useful to think of religion not literally as a business, not as a profit-maximizing business, but as an organization that, as you say, faces many of the same challenges and constraints and informational shortcomings that any institution does. 
Absolutely. In fact, when I go around and tell people what I do, I, I will tell scholars and philosophers, and they say, oh, economics of religion, you can't study religion with economics, that's just silly. But when I talk to pastors and bishops and rabbis and say, this is what I do, they're very responsive. They say, oh, yes, this is what I have to do on a daily basis. I have to figure out whether we're going to use our resources for the youth group or for our missions abroad or you know, this, that, and the other thing. There's collective action problems. There's principal agent problems they deal with. And so the actual practitioners of, of religion are very open to this kind of analysis. So let's let's get into it. Um, we had a long time ago uh, Larry Anacone, an economist, one of the few economists who does study religion. And one of his themes is that uh, competition is good for uh, the customer. It's good for religious followers just as it is in other areas of economic activity. Uh, what's your take on that? Do you think uh, – and what evidence do we have that allowing economic for, uh, religious freedom is, is good for uh, religious adherence? I, I think religious competition is very important for – growing religion or religious vitality within a society and we can go back to none other than adam smith to talk about this and i think you did talk to larry anaconi about this in the past but if you look at the full uh or the full volume of adam smith's wealth of nations in book five he actually has a fairly long discussion on what he calls adult education that deals with this issue of religiosity in society and one of the things that he notes sitting there in Scotland, he says, well, you know, if you have a state-run monopoly of religion, the clergy will, and this is one of my favorite lines in the entire book, he says, the clergies will, rep will repose themselves on their benefices. That when they receive their sustenance from the state, from the government, which is forcibly collecting taxes from people, they don't have to do very much. They, they don't have to worry about getting donations from the congregants and giving them essentially what they want. Um, and on top of it, they, they oftentimes ask the church, or excuse me, the state, to exclude competitors. And if you don't have any competitors and all your money is uh, guaranteed from the state budget, there's little you have to do in order to really energize the congregation. And Smith went on and was looking across the Atlantic Ocean in the, the case of Pennsylvania specifically, he mentions. And he says, well, they have a lot of religious freedom. And the clergy there are required to basically, for their own sustenance, engage their congregants and, and give them dynamic sermons and you know meet with them on a regular basis. And uh, not surprisingly, religious is, religion is extremely uh, uh, vital, vibrant in the United States. Yeah, so I, and there's no doubt about that, <clears throat> that that's continued. We are a country that has – an unusually high level of religious freedom, and we have an extremely dynamic religious uh, marketplace. But I've always wondered whether that's kind of an outlier, whether we're just unusual or different. It's possible. Uh, in terms of other countries, what other evidence do we have that that there's uh, – uh, and as, as we admitted earlier, it's hard to measure, so it's hard to mm -hmm. get empirical evidence. But what kind of evidence do we have that might suggest this is a more general phenomenon? Well, Larry and some of his colleagues have actually gone out and tried to measure this. He's used the index of uh, industrial concentration, the Herfindahl index, in order to figure out which countries are more pluralistic and not. And he's uh, have seen that countries that tend to be more pluralistic tend to have more 
active participation in religious organizations. And some of that has been challenged. That people have said, well, the Herfindahl Index might have some internal biases for this. But in my own work, and this was at the time that Larry was publishing some of his work, I went down to Latin America, and I was very interested in why the Catholic Church during the 19. 19- 60s and 70s was really changing its pastoral tone and was taking a more what we would call preferential option for the poor. In some countries that was happening, but not in all countries. And one of the interesting things that I discovered was that wherever the church was taking this preferential option for the poor by engaging the poor, creating what were known as Christian-based communities, and working with people more so than they had in the previous centuries, there were a lot of Protestants around and I said, oh, that's kind of funny. I, I, I wonder why that is. And it was at the same time that I discovered Larry Anacone's work. And so I hopped the plane and, and went down there. And it, lo and behold, you found out that a lot of the Catholic priests in areas where there were a lot of Protestants were saying, whoa, if I don't get my act together, all my congregants, my flock were supposed to be Catholic. And, they, and they've been Catholic for 400 years because that's been the only church in town. But now they're becoming Protestants. I had better work much harder in order to retain these parishioners or to attract them back than I had in the past. And, and this was even reflected in, in church policy. They, during the 1970s and 1980s, they had a theme of the re-evangelization of Latin America and was explicitly stated, listen, Protestants are coming in. They have the freedom in some countries to do so now. And if we don't really engage our congregants, they're going to leave us. And so, you know, not surprisingly, they put more efforts in recruiting priests, uh, importing priests in to minister to the population. And I, as, as, a re, as an effect, I would say that more people are engaged in religious activity in Latin America today than, say, 100 years ago when the Catholic Church was basically the monopoly church. So let's talk more generally about the role of the state. Uh, the state interacts with religion. Government interacts with religion in all kinds of ways, sometimes regulating it, sometimes liberating it. Let's talk about some of the variation to start with, and then I know you have some ideas and and theories about why these differences might occur. But certainly there's an enormous variety of ways that the state interacts with religion. So discuss some of those. Yeah, this is the bulk of my work is looking at what I call church-state bargains and how governments regulate religious organizations or – alternatively decide to deregulate religious organizations, which is the issue of religious liberty, and we'll, we'll get to why they might do that in a second. But historically, I have noticed, when you take a broad sweep of history, you'll find out that church and state, and, and by church too, I'm referring to other religious traditions as well, synagogues, mosques, et cetera, et cetera. Um, these religious organizations form fairly tight bonds with the state. And in pursuing this line of research, I sat down and I said, okay, first of all, what we have to do is figure out why the government, why political rulers or the state would be interested in this kind of thing. And you sit down and you say, okay, well, what do political leaders want? And the first thing that comes to mind, and this harkens back to a, a podcast you did with Barry Weingast on the violence trap, violence trap a few months ago, was the desire to survive in office. 
And we know this here in the United States is the reelection imperative. You need to win office in the next election cycle. Otherwise, you're not in Congress. And if you're not in Congress, you can't implement policy. So therefore, being you don't have any you don't have any fun either. It's not just you can't save the world. Um, That's true. you, 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 You don't get that that job. Everybody likes to keep the jobs they like. It's a that's a pretty human phenomenon. It is, and it, it's actually one that we, as political economists, oftentimes overlook. We we look, you know, thinking about the public interest rather than that individual interest of the person who is making the policy. And I think it's it's very important to start with. So political survival is very important. And then once you're beyond that, the next thing that political rulers tend to like is revenue. And and I, I should back up a minute and say that. The imperative to stay in office is not just something you see in democracies, but it's also in autocracies that, okay, there's not going to be an election coming up in, you know, the Soviet Union or Zimbabwe or something. But, you know, all those leaders are very concerned about military coups, palace coups within their own ranks or within revolutionary movements. So political survival is first and foremost important. The second is basically bringing in revenue, being able to control some of the resources of society that way. You know, you might be able to build a nicer palace for yourself or distribute it to other individuals who pose a threat to you. So revenue becomes very important. And the third thing that I talk about, too, is that economic growth. Most uh, political rulers would prefer to have economic growth rather than not have economic growth. And it's we know that there are many cases that political leaders do not pursue policies that would seem to produce uh, economic growth. Again, this goes back to Barry Weingast podcast that you had before. Um, but it's because those other things, political survival and increased revenue take precedence over that. So that's what political leaders want. And we have to look at the other side of the equation here to figure out how this church state bargain comes about. And I said, well, what do religious leaders want? And they're I'm going to take religious leaders at face value and say they're very concerned about preaching the word of God. I will take them at their word that they believe the the doctrines that they promote, and they want to reach as many people as they can with this. So basically the preeminent desire of religious leaders is to maximize market share. If we could put this into economic terms, we could say they want to proselytize, evangelize to as many people as they want to bring into their to their ranks. Now, there are some non-proselytizing religions. Judaism is one of those, uh, but it's not that they want to expand necessarily, but they certainly don't want to shrink. They don't want to disappear. And so maintaining a large number of of people affiliated with your faith is good. Um, And the other thing is revenue. And these leaders, the religious leaders, they understand that in order to bring in people in order to evangelize and missionize. You need to have priests, clergy who need to be paid and you need to house them, et cetera, et cetera. So you need to basically bring in and revenue. So now you start thinking about the connection between state interest and religious interest. And from the religious side, one of the easiest ways to make sure that you can maximize your flock is to get the state to exclude all competitors. That's, you know, because, well, first of all, it's very easy to set up a religion. It doesn't take that much. You, you know, got some ideas and you walk around and you tell people, and if they like your ideas, they'll start to join up with you. And so, you know, that's great. It doesn't take, it's not like building a steel mill or anything. And so religious 
organizations are fairly vulnerable to competition, false sex or different competitors. And it's really tempting for religious leaders to go to state officials who have the ability to coerce a population and say, hey, um, could you keep these false religions? And you hear that term a lot um, when you deal with state churches. Oh, these false religions will corrupt the culture. Could you keep them out? Just you know, put up tariff barriers or just put them on planes and get them out of the country if their missionaries tend to come in. Um, and the other thing, too, that the church is very interested in or religious organizations are interested in the state is that it's a pretty easy way of getting funding. And for religious organizations, it's oftentimes very difficult to get people to contribute. Most of the time, it's voluntary contributions, difficult to price theological doctrines. And so, you know, the constant complaint among clergy even today, but you can see this throughout time, is that, oh, people never tithe. They're supposed to give 10%, and they only give 2%. And so how can we solve our resource problem? Oh, well, again, let's go to the state, go to the government and say, hey, we're very important. Could you possibly fund us, you know, collect some taxes. And in places like Germany today, they still have uh, on their income tax, you pay into the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church, and uh, then the state collects it and distributes it back to the, the different organizations. So so that so, makes that makes sense to me, right? <clears throat> the, only, the only thing I would add is that just as public uh, officials have a mix of private and public motives – uh, they care presumably about making the world a better place. They also care about themselves. I, I suspect that many in the clergy have the same temptations across the religious spectrum. So they do care about their faith. They care about their adherence. They do care about resources to make the world a better place. They also care about resources for themselves. So they want they want to be paid well. They want to have influence. They want to have nice um, – everything that every most human beings want. There, there are some who don't. There are some religions that emphasize – the ascetic life, but in general, religions tend to amass power and resources that seem often to go beyond their um, the, the goals of just making uh, helping the religion. And in my experience, those get worse when uh, when their role with the state gets tighter. So when they're in competition with each other, they tend to serve the religion and their their adherents better than when they have monopoly and they can exploit. Uh, some of their own personal desires, whether they do that knowingly or not, I don't know. And I might be wrong, but that's my that's my first thought. Uh, my question, though, is in in a situation of of an authoritarian state, most authoritarian states, it seems to me through history, have often have seen religion as a competitor, and so their overwhelming desire of, of officials and and politicians and those dictatorial or authoritarian regimes is to crush religion, not to fund it. Is that not uh, a general truth or, or is, it, uh, is it is it wrong? There's a couple cases that really stand out in there. And I think most people would say, well, there's the Soviet Union when Lenin and Stalin really went after the Russian Orthodox Church and tried to purge it. And then also contemporary China where underneath Mao and you know during the Cultural Revolution, any whiff of religion was was trampled upon and nowadays there's official church that the chinese government controls there's black market churches which are unofficial and they try to stamp out and then there's this gray market in there those are the two big examples but again if you you go back and you look historically you look at uh, various kingdoms and that there's usually this church state alignment 
And so trying to understand why the Soviet Union would stamp out religion or why China would takes on um, another part of the research agenda. And I want to come back to that in a little bit, but answer your question about the how churches do tend to uh, you know, think about things, you know, public good for the world, but then when they get attached to the state, the individual interests oftentimes take over. And that's it's a very uh, insightful comment, because if you, you take a look at Christian history, its first 300 years, it was pretty much on its own in a fairly hostile environment. It's a degree of religious liberty there, but occasional persecutions. It's when Constantine has his conversion and says, you know what, we're going to recognize the Christian church and through the Council of Nicaea and then over the next few decades, basically starts to fund it. That's when you start seeing the Church of Power, to use a term that Rodney Stark has used, um, rise up. And to finish the equation that I was talking about before in this church-state bargain, religious organizations have always historically, for a variety of reasons, been very good at solving collective action problems. And they can mobilize people in ways that uh, you know are, are just utterly fascinating. You know, a lot of people, a lot of social scientists today study new social movements. And I said, you should really think about studying old social movements because churches have long ago solved this collective action problem. You think of the history of Judaism over 5,000 or so years, they still are a social movement and they're able to mobilize people to get people to act uh, upon their beliefs. And this becomes a big threat to political rulers. They say, oh, here's another source of authority. They have a set of rules and behavioral norms that they adhere to. And if this is used against us, well, that could threaten our number one priority, which is to get up tomorrow morning and make sure that we're still in office. And so from that regard, rulers are very interested. Okay, if we can co-opt the power of this religious organization, we'll go ahead and do it. We'll we'll keep out your competitors. We'll We'll keep funding you. If you need funding, that's great. Just... You give us ideological legitimation and or you keep your people from organizing and rebelling against us. And yeah, so, it's, yeah, it's mm-hmm. just a, that's a great point. I mean, it really is, uh, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. And joining them can be cheaper than beating them. Uh, so uh, it's a great, great way to think about it. Exactly. And in, in the case of the Soviet Union, then you would say, well, if there's ever a change in leadership, the, it would seem that the rational strategy would just to be go to the church and renegotiate the deal saying, you know, here it is, um, you know, the, the old rulers, we put them in prison or hung them and we're the new ones in charge. So we'll keep away your competitors and keep funding you. The question though, is to what extent the church can offer a credible commitment in supporting that regime. And in the case of the Soviet union, the Russian Orthodox church was so tied to the czars that, uh, you know, folks like Lenin with a very rapid change in leadership would say, well, you know, I don't know if we trust you folks. And so it was just easier to, to crush them. What is interesting, though, is that Stalin, and we, and we know Stalin is not one of the great guys in history. He wasn't very accommodating to many of his opponents. But nonetheless, he he falls into this trap too of supporting this church state bargain because as world war ii starts to roll around and he's saying oh i'm worried about the the germans off there to our west and we need to rally the russians for nationalism he turned to the russian orthodox church he says listen guys you sorry about all the the killing of your clergy but um we need to support you now we'll you know we'll pay you for your clergy etc etc and they basically set up a modus vivendi 
And you see this, I think, as well with uh, the Chinese government as well. As, you know, the rapid revolutionary change, anything from the ancient regime, we have to get rid of rapidly. And so we crush all possible forms of dissent. But over time, they're saying, well, I guess we couldn't really crush this religion. So let's start to try to deal with this. And you see this in the late 70s, early 80s. Deng Xiaoping says, okay, let's, you, you want to have religion, we'll give you an official religion. And I, I can't remember the, the exact name, but they have some consortium of, of Christian churches, which is officially recognized, and it's a pretty tame church, um, and they let that exist. And there's also these other groups that are unofficial, that they tolerate so long as they don't pose a threat to the survival of the regime. Yeah, Anne Applebaum has written of an interesting book. I think I think it's called The Iron Curtain, where she talks about in the in the uh, in Eastern Europe how the Soviets reacted to all kinds of voluntary organizations, not just religion, but clubs and and other forms of what what is called civil society, because they realized that these organizations. Not only were they competing in the sense that they were establishing an identity for people independently of, of the state, but also they were a place where people could get together, learn to trust each other, and potentially cause some trouble. Because mm -hmm. you know, when you break up groups like that and when you make people suspicious of their neighbor, it gets really hard to conspire. And I think that uh, was one of the factors. The other thought I had thinking about your conversation on the Soviet Union is – there's, I assume there are a lot of different sects and religions in the Soviet Union uh, up until its fall in 89, 1989 and um, early 90s, and that, that made it a lot harder. There wasn't an obvious team to back. Uh, there was a lot more existing competing elements in the religious landscape, I would think. And, and you're talking here in the early 90s? No, no, I'm thinking about in the – 19, from the revolution onward, I'm thinking 1917 to 19, say 70, 80, 90, the, mm -hmm. the, the years of the Russian Revolution when the Soviet Union was established, certainly post-World War II, the challenge of co-opting religion would be a lot harder. Now, it's one thing to say, well, the Russian Orthodox Church is a big player, so you, you're nice to them. But when you have the diverse set of peoples in the Soviet Union that they had – it would seem to be a, a trickier problem to create a state monopoly. Yeah, that is very interesting. In part, if, if you look at Russia per se, the Russian part of the Soviet Union, it, that was largely dominated by the Russian Orthodox Church and this church-state bargain leading up to 1917. They were very cozy with the czars, and so pretty much everybody was Russian Orthodox by fiat. And you, as the Soviet Union expanded, it expands into some different territories. It starts going into the, the Stans in the south, and so you start bringing in Muslims. And as you go out east, there's some Buddhists there. And then you also had the Jewish population that was interspersed throughout there. What's interesting about these different churches was that they tended to be very ethnically and geographically bounded. And so there wasn't a great deal of competition. So you, the deal that you cut with the Russian Orthodox Church, this modus vivendi that Stalin eventually came to, you can kind of do that in the South with Muslims. So, okay, as That's long as you don't challenge yeah. us, it's okay. And and the same thing is that you know as long as Jews didn't cause any problems, you you fine. You do your Jewish thing, and and no big deal. Well, same but, thing with Buddhists. Yeah, but the Jews are kind of a special case because they were spread out. And, right. and my impression of Jewish life in the Soviet Union was it was never very good, and sometimes it was awful. Although mm -hmm. there was uh, a chief rabbi 
uh, who was, uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't know how much of a pawn, because he was a pawn of the state, a uh, pawn of the regime. To some extent, he was, I assume, and I think that's true in a lot of totalitarian systems. They're they're serving at the pleasure of the regime in a very different way than than a leader of a religion would in a more free country. Um, let's let's move on to the the more the other case, the other end of the spectrum. Why would uh, political leaders favor religious freedom, not just toleration or co-opting or creating a monopoly or a, a church-state bargain like you've been discussing? But why would politicians favor religious liberty, which is um, surprisingly common in some dimensions? Certainly historically, uh, we're living at a time where there's a relatively large amount of religious liberty in many places, not all, but many. What mm-hmm. what might explain that? I think we have to first start off by saying religious liberty is a multifaceted concept here, and it's it's not something that you either have or you don't have. And I think this is one of the misunderstandings we often get to. So when you say, no, we have religious freedom around the world quite a bit, well, everybody has a constitutional declaration that says freedom of conscience. But the question comes down is how you you regulate very specific aspects of religion to to raise the cost or to lower the cost of going out and organizing your religious faith and proselytizing, etc. And if you start to look at it that way, you start to see much more variations that, oh, there might not be as much religious liberty today as there as we might think if we just look at uh, the, the that question. But to get to your your main question. I found this to be a very interesting and puzzling one, especially from a public choice political economy perspective, is why would a government that has control, has regulatory control over religion, ever want to deregulate that? It just would seem to go against the interest of of the rulers. Well, we have control over this. They're supporting us. We've co-opted their leaders, etc. Why would we ever want to disestablish that? And again, it goes back to looking at what are the interests of the rulers? Because there are people who put pen to paper and decide to make these rules. And you have to think about, well, what are they trying to maximize? What are they trying to gain in life? And what other things are going around them at the same time? And before I get to that, the study of religious liberty and why it comes about has largely been uh, a focus of scholars through ideational lens, wherein people think, well, John... It's it's a in terms of the methodology or the theory of studying how things come about. Certain scholars emphasize the role of ideas more than incentives, and so frequently when I'm reading in the religious liberty literature, you'll see things like, well, John Locke sat down and wrote his letter of toleration, and that was very influential in London at the time, and then it got overseas, and Madison read that letter and was very influenced by the ideas of Locke, and he told other people, and they had a big debate about it, and the debate was won by the people who like religious liberty. And it's, it's a perspective that many of us scholars tend to like because we deal in the currency of ideas. Yeah, makes us right? seem more important. It's a Keynesian argument, right? Scribblers, yeah. academic scribblers have more influence than you'd think. That's that's the uh, that's that's always an appealing idea. Yeah, and so you you see a lot of this, well, if you know, you can just convince enough people then policy is going to be made, but when I sat down and, and thought about this problem, I said, well, and and I started by looking at the American colonies the British American colonies in the 1600s and 1700s and said, well, you know, is it just the idea? Because there were a lot of people that thought religious 
liberty was a really good idea, but there were also a lot of people who still didn't like it. And, and ironically, and I, I think many people forget this, but the Puritans themselves, we, we think about the pilgrims coming overseas and landing on Plymouth Rock to escape religious persecution, and so they're fighters for religious freedom. But as soon as they got over there to the rock, and especially as the, as the, the Puritans and subsequent decades came in, they set up their own state church, essentially. And so religious freedom was fairly limited there. So how did this stuff emerge? And again, you look at the incentives of politicians, of, of people who put pen to paper and write the policy, and they're interested in political survival. They're interested in getting more revenue, and they're interested in economic growth. And the most amazing thing, when I started to read the colonial history of the Americas, you saw this argument made continuously about how religious liberty and economic trade and revenue was connected with one another. So you take, for instance, William Penn, and he's known as one of the great champions of religious liberty. He was a Quaker, settles Pennsylvania, and everybody's very impressed that he allows a great deal of religious liberty. And you can read his collected body of works and he talks about the, the virtues of religious liberty. But when it comes down to it, when it comes time to write to the king, this is King Charles II in the late uh, 16, middle to late 1600s, he, he basically made a very explicit point to him. He says, listen, if you need to, if you want to have economic growth in the colonies, which is going to get you a lot of gold doubloons or pounds or whatever the currency was, you need to allow religious liberty. And, and I, I, if, if I can, I have a quote from William Penn, if I could read that. Sure, go ahead. It's, it's from a 1686 letter called a persuasive, uh, a persuasive to moderation to church dissenters in prudence and conscience. And they, they have this lovely way of talking back then. So I'll try to clean it up for the 21st century audience. But he says, but as religious persecution has many arguments for it, and here he was talking about the Puritans saying, oh, if we let false sex in Christianity, will decline. He says, but as persecution has many arguments for it that are drawn from the advantages that have and would come to the public, so there are diverse mischiefs that must unavoidably follow the persecution of dissenters that may reasonably dissuade us from such severity. So there he's warning, okay, maybe there's a case for restricting religious freedom, but here's a good case for why we should have it. And now note where he goes with this. He says, for they, the dissenters, must either be ruined, flee, or conform, and perhaps the last is not the safest. If they, the dissenters, are ruined in their estates and their persons imprisoned, modestly compute a fourth of the trade and manufactory of the kingdom sinks. And those who have helped to maintain the poor must come under the poor's book for maintenance. And first of all, I have to love how he uses the word manufactory. Some of these words are just wonderful there. But what he's, he's telling the king is that, listen, we're Quakers here in Pennsylvania, and we'd just love if everybody was Quakers. But there's Presbyterians that come over here. There's some Anglicans and a few other groups that are coming in, and they're all pretty useful for society because they make things and they trade things. And if, if we excluded these people, the economy is really going to suffer. And, and oh, by the way, dear King, if they suffer, 
um, you are going to suffer because you're not going to be collecting as much revenue. And this might lead to social unrest as well. And dear King Charles, you certainly do not want that if you remember that uh, civil war you just had in England a, a few decades ago. And so it's a very explicit appeal. But it's interesting. I don't, the, quite, I don't quite understand mm-hmm. it. So what he's worried about uh, – I mean I, there are a lot of – there's there are a lot of arguments you can make for the virtues of religious liberty on – economic activity, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about him in a minute. But he's worrying about, I thought, conformity. So why is he disturbed if, if say, Quaker – the Quaker faith becomes the, the the only faith of Pennsylvania or if the Puritan set of beliefs became the, the only proper and acceptable form of belief in Massachusetts? He's suggesting that it, it would be a less – a less interesting and economically productive place is that because I mean conforming would seem to be okay. Does I think he's he must be implying that when faced with those choices of conform or or I forget the other two that that they'd flee they wouldn't show up. Is that is that yeah. correct? Yeah. So I I'm thinking of the context that Penn is writing in. And I think as a devout Quaker, he would say, I, I would love if everybody was conforming to the Society of Friends theological beliefs. That would be a big win for him. But in reality, that's not what the case is. In fact, uh, Penn is dealing with some colonies just there to the east of him called the Massachusetts Bay Colony that's filled with a number of Puritans. And any time a Quaker goes to trade in Boston or in Plymouth um, and simultaneously starts to pray or do their own Quaker thing, whatever that might be, they get thrown in prison. And the Puritans were known for hanging people. Mary Dyer, there's a statue of her on Boston Commons as a a fighter for religious freedom. She was a Quaker that just kept going back to Boston. They kept imprisoning her and throwing her out and eventually just hung her, said, don't come back again. um, That would do it. Yeah, it would do it. Um, (laughs) Sorry to say. Yeah, and and she didn't. She didn't come back again, although maybe her ideas or her influence did. But Penn was making the case saying, listen, I'm probably not going to convince all these Puritans to become Quakers, and they're not going to convince us Quakers to become Puritans. And if we continually exclude one another from trade with one another, we're, we're both going to be worse off. So let's just put aside these differences, our theological differences right now, and and go ahead and trade and allow for religious liberty. This was indeed a lesson that was learned in the Netherlands as well, is that when the Edict of, um, I I think the Edict of Nantes was revoked in France, and the Edict of Nantes originally was to allow French Protestants to have freedom in the country, and then under the influence of Cardinal Mazarin, I think the king was influenced to revoke this and to crack down on the Protestants. The Catholic Church didn't like all these Huguenots and their Huguenot, and they cracked down on them. All a bunch of these French Protestants fled, and that then you know, Penn is actually making reference to this. They 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 end up going, and where did they go? They went to the Netherlands. Where the Dutch said, "We embrace you. You're you're wonderful people. You you set up businesses. You trade, and you have wonderful capital assets. Come and and engage in commerce with us." And the Netherlands flourished at that period of time. And so, you know, Penn looks at this and says, "Listen, if we're in a world that there is going to be religious diversity, we can either fight it out, and we could possibly be the losers." 
or we could just say put aside our differences try to engage our clergy as best we can, or our, our congregants as best we can, and let's just go about trading. Everybody will be better off for that. It's, it's almost a balance of power argument, that if there's a multiplicity of religious denominations, it's just best that everybody sets aside their differences, agrees to disagree, and then goes about their daily business, because in the end, what you see is everybody flourishes. Well, the other thought I had, which... Uh is a, I think a Hayekian point in some dimension is that when you live in a pluralistic world, uh, you're forced to be tolerant to some mm -hmm. extent, and it helps for trade, right? If, you, if you're going to deal with strangers, which you have to do in a world of specialization and trade, it's good to be respectful of those strangers. It's good to have an ideology, which is another benefit the United States has, of, of this idea of a melting pot. It's not just in the United States. It's not just religious. It's ethnic and that's at least that was the idea. I think we've lost some of that um, for better or for worse. There's some good things and bad things about it. But the other thought I had is that you know, throughout history, Jews have been expelled from lots of countries. Um, they've been put in jail and they've been hanged and burned and killed. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned the Netherlands because I think after the uh, the Spanish Inquisition, which starts in the late 14th century uh, in, in persecuting Jews – and I assume others, uh, but I'm more aware of the Jewish part, uh, the Jews end up being expelled from Spain in the magic year of 1492, where they had been a very prominent part of the economy. Mm -hmm. They go to the Netherlands, a lot of them. They go a lot of places, obviously. They scatter around the Middle East. Uh, they scatter around the Mediterranean. But one of the places they go is to the Netherlands, which, as you say, was very welcoming of different kinds of people. And I'm sure they had a positive effect on the economy of the Netherlands and I don't think Spain did so well after that. That could be a coincidence. Correlation is not causation. But uh, certainly having an intolerant attitude toward other people versus a more tolerant one is going to change how well your economy performs. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is one of the things that William Penn is, is looking at at the time. You know, the other challenge that William Penn had was to populate his colony. And he he just basically needed warm bodies there to get the economy growing. And so he was said, listen, uh, you know, we're Quakers here. I'm a Quaker. Um, but if we only restrict it to Quakers, not enough people are going to come out. And so, you know, I, I've seen, you know, the, the ill effects of my Quaker brethren in the Massachusetts colony be persecuted. They don't want to go there. But, well, what if we let Puritans come by us or Presbyterians or German Lutherans? In fact, he actually uh, advertised for people to come to this new colony in Germany and said, we promise you religious liberty. You know, you're not Quakers, we're Quakers, but you know what? That's fine. You come and be industrious, we'll populate this area, and it'll work pretty well. There's, um, and I, I don't know if you know this guy, but this will be something fun for the listeners here. There's um, a political economist. He was known as the um, America's United States' first political economist, a guy named Tench Cox. Have you heard of him? I have not. How do you spell it? It's a very strange name, T-E-N-C-H. And then his last name is C-O-X-E. Hmm. And he's an interesting cat. He's probably not very well known because his economics is all over the map. He was free market. He was interventionist, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, he wrote in 1794, I believe, he wrote a, a collection of works called A View of the United States of America. And he noticed what Penn had been saying. He said, such is the present situation in Pennsylvania 
which is more or less the same in several of the other American states where they have religious liberty, New York, Maine, Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia, Vermont. But though not so in the rest, and here he's pointing his finger at at Massachusetts, um, the principal difference is that they are so fully peopled. So this is Pennsylvania, New York, Virginia. They're so fully peopled that there are no new lands of value unsold and farming lands which are not improved. In those states, agricultural, commerce, manufacturers, the fisheries and navigation afford comfortable sustenance and ample rewards of profits to the industrious and well-disposed amidst the blessings of civil and religious liberty. And so he looked across this, wow, Pennsylvania, what a multiplicity of different confessions. How wonderful and how productive you are. But when you restrict certain people from coming in on some criteria that's not at all related to whether or not they can make good furniture or watches or glasses, whatever it might be, you're going to flourish. So, you know, religious liberty stuff, set that aside. And, and oh, by the way, you know, we should make this a general policy here in the United States. He was one of the big advocates of, as, as a member of the Continental Congress of the First uh, Amendment. Well, that's nice to know about. I look forward to learning more about Tench. Uh, mm. it's a, I, I'd like to know how he got his name, uh, both first and last. It sounds like a pseudonym. He, you know, he's, <laughs> he's actually a uh, – uh, a well-known person hiding and masquerading under some uh, a pseudonym of Tench Coke. What a great name. Yeah, you would think that is, but they had such great names back in those days. There was Governor Morris and Cotton Mather. <laughs> I mean, you have a name called, you know, your first name was Cotton. Yeah, I true. just <laughs> It was a wonderful name. I in Just um, in reading some of the history of the colonial Americas, I just happened to stumble across somebody in a footnote had read something. Oh, Tench Coke said religious liberty is important. I go, well, who is this guy? And they called him the first political economist of the Americas. I said, well, <laughs> you got to look into this guy. And as I, I pulled out his book, he, you know, is a political economist much in the 18th century sense that he was examining all of social life. And one of his observations was on, on religious liberty. I, I should also mention he was also a big advocate of the Second Amendment uh, of uh, the right to defend or right to bear arms and stuff like that. So he was a very interesting guy. Uh, we'll look. We'll look into him. Put up some links w- if we can find some. Uh, let's let's move on to a different topic that I know you've written about lately, and that's very interesting, which is property rights. Why are property rights important to religious uh, organizations? Well, as we mentioned before, the concept of religious liberty is really multifaceted. It's somewhat incorrect to look at it as a dichotomy. You either have it or you don't. Because again, the way I, I view it is any kind of restriction or something that raises the cost to a group of religion, religious adherents who want to organize and proselytize, that's a restriction on religious liberty. And, you know, as most economists, even the most libertarian economists note that there are going to have to be some rules and laws in society, you can't have a completely religiously free market saying, well, we allow murderous sex to exist for the sake of religious liberty. No, because that imposes you know, externalities or bad things on other people. So there's going to be some limits to this. And the question is how you draw those lines. And, and when I, I teach my political economy classes, students are always for, oh, choose the best policy. And I say, okay, let's choose the best policy. But when it comes to writing that policy, you do have to draw a bright line. So where do we draw the bright lines? Now, interestingly, one of the areas where religious liberty issues are really becoming important here in the United States, as well as elsewhere around the world, is this issue of property rights. That, 
and, and people go, well, why would property rights matter? Well, religious individuals oftentimes like to congregate. They get together and, and form groups, and they like to have regularized meeting places where they can come and profess their faith together. We call these churches, synagogues, mosques, etc. And having access to that space is very important. And where, what you can do with your property, your your you know physical assets such as building, as well as you know other assets such as your the people who work for you, etc., becomes very important. And one of the things that I noticed about a decade ago was that a number of local governments around my area out here in the state of Washington. We're really trying to zone churches to the netherworld in many cases. There was actually a case in early 2001 where the county that I live in declared a moratorium on church growth in the unincorporated or rural areas. I said, well, that's, that's kind of odd. And the argument that they made for this is that, well, if you, if you build churches out there in the rural, world, then all of a sudden subdivisions will crop up around there and it'll create a lot of congestion. It'll ruin the rural rural landscape and oh, that will just, just be horrible. And I scratched my head because at the same time that they're trying to prohibit churches from expanding in these areas, they were building these high density neighborhoods in the same areas. And uh, I said, well, hmm, what, what, is, what is going on here? Why do they say they're, they're concerned about churches uh, creating congestion, but still building these very high-density suburban housing complexes. And again, I go back to, well, what are politicians interested? They want to get reelected. They want government revenue. And I thought, aha, uh-huh. if, if you give, I don't know, say 20 acres of land to a church, that's 20 acres of land that is not taxed at the same rate as, say, 70 standalone houses. And so one of the big threats that I've seen emerge in in the United States today is is how governments are biasing decisions against churches in order to find uses for land and real estate and property that generate them more tax revenue. And there was never a clearer case than this of one that happened down in Southern California a little more than a decade ago, there was a, a church called the Cottonwood Christian Fellowship. It started as a Bible study group, and they collected their nickels, dimes, and quarters and saved up to, as they expanded, to build a, a very large, what we'd call mega church now. And right when they were about to break ground in in the city, the, the city council stepped in and says, nope, we're declaring eminent domain. And you cannot use this property, which you, you purchased, you know, legally and for this kind of purpose, because it would create all sorts of, of problems. And one of the arguments that the city council made is says, well, building a very large church on this plot of land would actually create congestion. I said, well, what are you going to use the land for? Well, it's going to be a big box retailer <laughs> because of course there's never congestion around a Walmart or Costco. Um, and, it, it was. It became that's very a, clear. That's just such a fascinating example because the yeah. the property right, the property tax aspect of it is obviously very germane to the interests of those politicians. Um, having said that, it's hard to believe that would uh, survive a First Amendment challenge. And that is really interesting. And this is, I think, for people who are interested in this topic, need to be aware of because that court case and it, it went to court. 
and was winding its way through the various levels of the court system. It was eventually settled outside a case, uh, a court. Somebody with some property just down the road said, you know, we'll sell you this and can everybody be okay? And all the parties got together and agreed and it was fine. But the, the case was very reminiscent of another Supreme Court case that was going through the system at the same time and eventually did make it to the Supreme Court, which was Kelo versus New London which is an immensely important court case. And I'm surprised that so many people are unaware of it. And the argument was that tax revenue could be considered a public good and therefore justify eminent domain seizures by local governments. And whereas previously eminent domain was only invoked if you had some kind of physical building, a sewage treatment plant or a freeway that could only go through this neighborhood. But now you open the Pandora box of, well, tax revenue is a public good because you can use it for police and firefighters and puppy dog shelters, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it gives local governments enormous power. And when it comes down to this. And, I, I, and temptation. I tell, <laughs> and temptation. Yes. Um, and I, I remember when that court, uh, Supreme Court case was decided, it, it, so many local government officials came out to the microphone and said, oh, don't worry about it. We're not going to, you know, just start Take taking advantage property. Yeah. yeah. And, and two months later, they were talking about, you know, gentrifying downtown neighborhoods and taking people's property. <laughs> but but there, there was a legislative backlash because people were very upset about it. And mm-hmm. a lot of... Uh, my understanding is at the time, maybe it's changed since then, but a lot of legislatures uh, tried to revert, not reverse, but reassure people that they would not take advantage of that. Is that true? Yeah, they did. And I remember this in the state of Washington. There were efforts to do this. Local city councils made you know, commitments that, oh, don't worry and that. But it, you just, if you just start looking you see all these little expropriations based upon this, and, and all these things are going to have to be legislated again. I think this is going to be a, a big area for legislation in the future, and one that affects churches, because when it comes to it, I don't think it would be politically astute to use eminent domain to seize an existing church. Uh, you know, that looks like you're kicking puppy dogs. Yep. And so no politician would want to do that. Plus, you have the collective organization, the collective action of the church really can, you know, bring a lot of people marching downtown at City Hall. But a church that wants to expand its property or wants to plant a church somewhere, um, it's going to be much more difficult because now governments can say, well, you know, you're not going to pay very much tax on that property that you have. It tends to be tax exempt or taxed at a much lower rate. And, uh, you know, we're going to put in the local Piggly Wiggly store here because they're going to generate more property tax revenue and sales tax revenue, et cetera, et cetera. And so there will be a, a tendency toward a, a bias against church growth in some of these areas. Now, there is a piece of legislation from Congress known as the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act that tries to prevent against that. Is try to say, well, you can't discriminate against churches just because it, you know, they don't generate as much revenue as a, a big box store or something of that nature. But that kind of goes in it, its intention, I should say, with that Kilo versus New London. And I think if Kilo versus New London is ever overturned or decided differently, it's it's going to be based on some kind of church that says, listen. Um, we want to build a church here, but you're excluding us from this because this grocery store is going to generate more revenue. Um, 
you can't do that. So I, it's something that I think is coming down the pipeline in the next decade or so. So let me just give a go back to this First Amendment issue because I think it's it's going to be relevant down the road. And then uh, I want to close by asking a, a different question because we're getting short on time. But uh, I've been involved with a couple of synagogues that wanted to put new facilities in neighborhoods that were not zoned for a church or a synagogue or religious institution. I'm not sure what – I think they were zoned for houses, period. So mm-hmm. putting anything there other than a house was probably not allowed. So somebody bought the land, the the uh, the religious community, the, the Jewish community bought the land, the, the synagogue, and then they wanted to build it, build something there. And they were – both times that I was involved in it, challenged by local residents who either for a variety of reasons didn't want a synagogue in their neighborhood. Uh, it was usually done on congestion – Arguments uh, mm-hmm. was the usual argument, and in both cases, the, although they had the, you know, it appeared they had the the law on their side because of the zoning issue. Uh, both cases, the the uh, synagogues won, and the the buildings were built despite the zoning uh, regulation because of the First Amendment. And I I think I'm not sure there's ever been uh, a successful stopping of a of a organization that wanted to build a religious building because of the uh, zoning regulation. I think it's very difficult to stand up to that First Amendment. But I think your point, which is that it's a slippery slope or a gray area, is the right one. It's it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, and it's a fascinating uh, example. It seems to me the way to solve that problem for people who care about religion is to give up some of that subsidy um, and the tax-exempt status. It's not uh, – there's an economics argument for tax-exempt status for a religious institution – which is that it produces that it's a it's common property to some extent. It helps community members overcome some of the free riding problems by making it a little bit cheaper. But it seems to me on purely moral grounds, and I say this as a as a person who's actively involved in his synagogue and makes contributions uh, and understands that these are real issues. But still, it seems to me that to force people who don't agree with your principles to subsidize them through the tax code seems to me to be just wrong. Uh, and I think as people who care about religion, we should just – we should give up that subsidy and make it more attractive for the, for the state to not uh, be prejudiced against religious institutions on those property rights – on those property tax grounds. I, I'm very sympathetic to that view with the caveat that anytime you start introducing complexity into the tax code, you open up this issue of rent-seeking where I can get the subsidy because I do wonderful things for the community, et cetera. And that, you know, the argument that you're making that I'm very sympathetic to, for me, really requires a much simplified tax code that is equally applied across all individuals and groups in society and is very transparent and difficult to change. Now, you know, if we could get that, I would be one happy camper, but maybe that's a topic for another interview. Well, uh it's a tough. We, we're all in favor of that. It just we don't know how to get there from here. Well, excuse me. We're not exactly. all. We're not all in favor of it. Two of us are. Yeah. You and me. Uh, my guest today has been Anthony Gill, the University of Washington. He hosts the podcast Research on Religion. Tony, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It's been a pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.